listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development. Covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox, senior writer at Future Sox, is joining me. Now, I'm going to depart in the middle of this episode, so you'll notice that you'll be hearing a lot of James Fox, which is totally fine because there's a lot of information coming your way on this episode as Brian Sikowski of Perfect Game will be joining us to break down the Chicago White Sox draft class, give us a little perspective on what they were able to do across the 20-round draft in which they signed everyone plus an extra 10 undrafted free agents. So that's something that you can look forward to in this episode. But James, first, let's kick it off with a recap of the trade deadline or the lack thereof, because the Chicago White Sox, to many fans' dismay, stood pat essentially outside of Jake Diekman, and they didn't move anybody from within the system. They traded Zach Collins from Reese McGuire at the beginning of the season, and Reese McGuire was traded for Jake Diekman, left-handed relief pitcher who's already made a few outings already with the White Sox and has looked good, but that's it. A left-handed bullpen arm to conclude the midseason for the Chicago White Sox. How are you feeling about this overall? A lot of fans, like I said, were pretty upset that Rickon wasn't able to land a big fish or even a bat, like a secondary, a complimentary piece, not any additions to the starting rotation. Are you frustrated with the way things turned out, or can you understand why Rickon failed at acquiring more talent? So I think it's super, like, complex. Like, I think, like, for days I was like, you know, they have to add because – like they're they're in a contention window, all the stuff that we've talked about, right? And I mentioned Jose Quintana and Tyler Naquin and David Peralta, and as those guys started like moving off the board, you know, I was kind of like, okay, like they have to have like another target here somewhere. So you know, talking to people, like I was under the impression that the White Sox obviously would have trouble getting anything with like a lot of control. Like I know they've liked Tyler Molly Malley in the past, and. The Twins got him, obviously, and like that's a trade that's tough to make for the White Sox because like you're just, you know, you're dumping out guys that we talk about all the time, and they probably didn't want to give up their top prospects in a deal. So, but I had also heard that like if they were in the rental market, they they should be able to do that. Like you see these deals, and it's like yeah, the White Sox should have been able to make a deal like that. So like I don't really know what happened. I do know that they like set a target list, which like kind of like seems like an issue, right? Like if you know that you need an upgrade, like you shouldn't be targeting one or two guys. You should be like more open-minded to like getting something done. Obviously guys like Tyler Naquin and David Peralta moved like days before the deadline. So maybe that, I mean, I guess to me, like I just assumed like Jack Peterson was finally coming and like San Francisco would sell and like they didn't. So yeah, it was very strange. Like I, like I said ahead of time that they needed to buy because I think standing pat like doesn't really make any sense. But then like once they stood pat, like I kind of shrugged my shoulders and was like, eh, okay. Like I just like didn't really care that much. And you know, part of that is like I think it makes our jobs a little bit easier that no prospects were traded. But like, yeah, like I I don't know. Like I don't even know. Like what's the deal that like you really wanted them to make? Like I think I would have been happy with Quintana. That would have been cool, depending on what they gave up. And like a Jack Peterson, I thought would have fit to have a left-handed bat that, you know, you could replace like sheets with or something. But I mean, other than that, I don't know. I kind of thought it would be a reliever and maybe a left-handed bat of some sort, but they only did the, you know, the Jake Diekman move. Well, I can understand that perspective and, and how you feel that way because it's frustrating to look at this White Sox team from a fan's perspective, but imagine looking at it through Rick Hahn's eyes where the roster isn't managed to its potential. And even if you do feel like you can add is it enough or is it even worth it? Like, are you compromising what you're working toward, which is developing a farm system that was 
from first to last over the last couple of seasons. Now they've been sitting at the bottom. Um, you know, they, they've been taking multiple seasons to get to a point where they're starting to see some of the fruits of their labor in these prospects. And not saying that we should be valuing these prospects higher or anything else like in that regard, considering where the White Sox stand in their competitive window, because look, this is the time of year when good teams buy. But to be fair, this was a seller's market. I mean, the sellers did have the leverage, which was maybe to Rickon's detriment. Maybe the offseason was a little bit more significant than we thought in terms of the struggles and trying to acquire what you need because of the lockout pre and post, how the market changed so quickly. I can only speculate in that regard. But when it comes to the trade deadline and the decision to stand pat, not that they didn't try because I know the White Sox were trying and I know White Sox fans out there are scoffing at that phrase because often they're trying to acquire, but you want them to be in on guys and also understand that there are also multiple teams in on that same player and they can just simply out leverage the White Sox right now. Because when teams hear that say like the Cardinals are giving up whatever they're giving up for Jose Quintana or any hypothetical situation, the team is going to go to the White Sox and say, okay, here's what they offered. Give me Andrew Vaughn or give me a headliner that is the equivalent of a close to ready major league starter. And it's hard to find that. So the next result is, are you going to trade away some of these young prospects like Colson Montgomery, Brian Ramos, Lenin Sosa, the young players that are on the brink of debuting, not so much Colson Montgomery and Ramos, but Lenin Sosa, and even Romy Gonzalez is in this conversation as well, not seriously, but those are the types of ready now players that the White Sox have at their disposal, while the highest value in their system remains their young prospects. So it's a very fine line for Rick Hahn to balance on this beam trying to maintain some sort of congruity in terms of the major league window being competitive enough to try to challenge for a World Series while also understanding that if you compromise the farm system for this team, you might be setting yourself back multiple years. So as I'm thinking this through, I'm trying to see it through Rick Hahn's eyes, and that's what I, that's what I came up with, James. How do you feel about that assessment? Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, a couple things for me, something that was very frustrating, but also where I think you're right. Like something we've said, like I don't I don't think they were trading Colson Montgomery and I don't think they were trading Oscar Colas. So like at that point, like anybody in your system that like we would have been like willing to deal, right? Like not to speculate like completely on like trade packages, but I mean like look, like in that next mix of guys, you have Jose Rodriguez and, and Ramos and guys like that and the pitchers, right? I think those guys like aren't good enough yet to high to headline a package for a controllable piece. And I think they're too good to trade for a rental, like eight Jose Quintana starts or Tyler Naquin to be the, you know, the strong side of an outfield platoon. So I think like that's where they run into problems. Like you see the Jose Quintana deal, you know, the third baseman, I think like Malcolm Nunez that went from the Cardinals to the Pirates. I mean, you read the scouting report, the guy sounds an awful lot like Brian Ramos. Like if the White Sox make that trade, people are freaking out right now, I feel like. So and this isn't to excuse them because the thing that's super annoying is like they completely botched the offseason and whether yes. it's and whether it's Rick Hahn or the entire front office. Like I, I push back when it's like fire Rick Hahn because I mean, it's like not just him. Like if you want to clear out the whole front office, like, OK, fine. But I mean, like the, the front office and ownership as a collective messed up this offseason badly and then. They said, like, oh, we'll have money to spend at the deadline. Like, we'll just fix it at the deadline. But then a deadline comes and they don't do anything, which is super. So, like, that's the part where, like, they should be held accountable, in my opinion. Like, look, sometimes, like, you can't make trades at the deadline. Like, I don't want them making stupid trades either. Like, I don't. It doesn't make any sense. And it's easy for us to say, like, oh, Rick, like, what do you mean you're upset? Like, it's your fault. You could have traded whoever you want. But, like, that's not really true. Like, that doesn't mean that you know, that they should have made a trade, then don't tell me in the off season that like you're, you're saving moves for the deadline. Right. Cause then it's like, Oh yeah. Now it's like, Oh yeah, we'll say, we'll, we'll get better in the winter. And then you don't spend any money in the winter. It's just like this endless cycle of nonsense. That's the problem that, that I have with like the whole situation. 
Right. And James, you're so right, because it begins in the offseason. It's the same process, and it's been very similar over the last three competitive seasons. When they set themselves up, the White Sox do, for financial flexibility, it's time to spend. And yet they take that flexibility into the season because it allows them to survey the market and figure out their needs and then attack at the deadline. Well, that's happened in three consecutive seasons now. They went hard last year and acquired a couple of strong trade pieces that ultimately cost you some you know, valuable products. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think you just bite the bullet on a couple of returns there. Um, it's just you, you made the moves to try to win. But at the same time, when you have an opportunity to upgrade at positions in the offseason where, where your payroll is at its highest, it's around $196 million, if I'm not mistaken, that's still, I think, top 10 in Major League Baseball, yet the threshold, the tax the luxury tax is $230 million. And the White Sox have all the resources in the world to be able to handle whatever that they take on in terms of contract length. But we know that the owner doesn't want to do that, and the White Sox are typically not ones to invest multiple years of control into free agency into a starting pitcher. And they definitely, definitely don't want to invest a multi-year contract into a bat that'll tie them to that one player for more than four to five years, more than really more than five years outside of the outliers and Luis Robert and the young players of Moncada and Oloy and Anderson, so on. So it's like when they're fishing in free agency, we've seen the same outcome. It's we're going to try to budget our financial flexibility across four to five players. We'll take the 15 million that we could have gave to Carlos Rodon on the qualifying offer, 18 million that we could have gave to Carlos Rodon and spread it out to five to six players. When these five to six players aren't getting the job done when you could have invested that that same sum into a player who fits a position where you're seeing negative war in the outfield defensively from a guy who plays first base. You know, there, there are things like that that drive me crazy about the way the White Sox front office is going about organizing this roster. Because when it comes to, and James, I'll let you finish up. I'm sorry to get on this tangent, but it just, you, you unlock something in my head. When it comes to dedicating their capital draft selections to a specific philosophy, what are they looking for in the draft? And this is prior to Mike Shirley. They're looking for the best value they can find at, the, at, the, at their position in the draft, wherever that lands, right? Of course. But the White Sox took Zach Collins. The White Sox took Gavin Sheets in the second round. They took Jake Berger in the first round. They took Andrew Vaughn in the first round. They took Madrigal because of his profile. But outside of Nick Madrigal, the consistency over the last four to five seasons have been bat first. And when you have bat first, it's fine when you're organizing a big league roster to accommodate to those players. But when you're asking those players to play important positions every day, you are going to see what we're seeing this year in the White Sox. Inconsistency in the little things. Poorly developed mechanically. Guys out of position that are ultimately getting you in trouble. So that's where my frustrations lie, James. It's the fact that you do so well to prepare for financial flexibility at a time when you can spend, and yet they decide to remain conservative. Well, yeah, and like you look at certain spots where like I think they've done okay, but they still like like you spend all this money on the bullpen, right? And like I don't even really care about that. Like Kendall Graveman and Joe Kelly and whoever, like spend whatever you want. I just I feel like it can't stop you from making other moves, and it like clearly does, right? You bring back Leary Garcia, you sign Josh Harrison, and Josh Harrison's been okay, I think, but and Romy Gonzalez has been hurt. So, like, my argument probably doesn't hold water here, but it's like, you know, you you saw what Mendick was capable of. You have Romy Gonzalez, you know, you have Yolbert Sanchez, who's struggled lately, who could fill in, but then you have Lenin Sosa, and you have, like, Jose Rodriguez coming. It's just like, it seems like th- there are spots where you could just promote guys internally. Like, look at what Jimmy Lambert's turned into, and they've kind of fixed Ronaldo Lopez. Like, you have some homegrown bullpen guys and some homegrown guys that could play the middle infield better than Larry Garcia has. So just take that money and get something useful instead. It's why the, you know, people are sick and tired of hearing about Carlos Rodon, but it's why that decision was so bad. Like, the process behind it was just awful. And then the Craig Kimber- Kimbrell decision, like, I think that was a good trade. Like, I agree with you. Like, the, the process at last year's deadline to go out and get the best closer, like, on the market was fine, and it didn't work. But for whatever reason, they didn't accept, like, the, the sunk cost fallacy 
and they had to get something for him and it hurt you. And it's just like the off season was terrible and it led into this deadline where I actually thought they might go out and try to like salvage it a little bit with some, with some pieces. And I, maybe they tried, but it didn't work. So, I mean, I do like the Jake Diekman edition. I think that's a guy who I've always kind of liked who walks too many guys, but like, I trust Ethan Katz with him like that, that moves fine. They just, you know, you just, they can't hit. So they, you know, if Jake, right. if Jake, yep. if Jake Diekman could hit, like maybe the, mm-hmm. maybe the deal would be better, but he, you know, that's not his job. Yeah. And well, when you're evaluating this White Sox team, you ask yourself what's missing. And first and foremost, I think the manager has to get out of the dugout. Okay. First, like literally leave, <laughs> go away. I don't want him a part of this. Team. I'm sorry if like people are sick of hearing about that too, but. I just feel like this organization will take a step in the right direction, whatever that step may be. If it's large, if it's small, I don't care. But you're going forward if Larusa's out as the manager of the White Sox. So that's number one. Number two, James, you mentioned the fact that the White Sox can be willing to promote from within. That is a phenomenal point because the White Sox, I think, the the belief that they have within their farm system has held them back from attacking other positions in free agency. And I'll leave you with that question, James, or that comment, and then we'll preview Brian Sikowski. But that's just me. I feel like the White Sox have a lot of confidence in cost-controlled young players that they're developing, that they are familiar with within their own system above spending for a free agent. See, I, I, yeah, but like not enough though, right? Because you don't have guys that – like I think their second baseman next year is in their system right now. I don't know who the guy is, you know, but I, I think like that's fine. But I mean, they just have all these square pegs that they're sticking in round holes. Like we've talked about this. We've talked about how good Andrew Vaughn is. I don't ever want to see him in the outfield ever again. It's so bad. And like, if you look on like his fan page or whatever, like his offensively, he's been, I think pretty much what we thought, like maybe we thought more power. I think more power will come. Right. But like the playing in the outfield is completely cratering his value. And it gets into a larger discussion that's maybe more appropriate for for Sox Machine than here about, you know, Jose Abreu and just like some of the other parts on the roster that they're just going to have to answer at some point. But it's like they've just not cared about defense for so long that it's like, oh, we have all these guys that we're committed to, like turn them into outfielders. And it hasn't worked. So, you know, yeah, I mean, they, they've had some faith in there, but they just spend in they just spend in weird spots and like it doesn't really make any sense so i i don't know it's it's just a and and we have a lot we have a lot of games left still and they have a shot obviously but it's just this is like not not fun at all i heard on your show the other day i heard dan bernstein say that how it's like man i had a great day and you know whatever like you find fun and you know you go out and do it and then you turn on the white Sox game and it's just like and i agree like it's just when they win, I feel like you're not even happy. You're just like relieved that they didn't lose again. And that's like not what we anticipated when they did all this. And we talked about all these guys when they were actual <laughs> prospects, right? It's just this, this was like not supposed to be this way. They can't play. They're not good. They can't beat good teams either. Well, so what you brought up though earlier too with the, the, the Han thing, like he's totally right about like the home runs, but like, you know, at some point, it's on the organization. These guys all didn't decide to just like stop hitting homers. Like something happened and I'm not a fire the hitting coach guy. Right. But stuff like that, like has never been more obvious with the hitting coach and Tony. And like, even if it's not a fix all, it's something and you can't fire the players. And I'm just like stunned that we're at this point and like nothing, nothing has happened really all year other than like them just expecting like this team to snap out of it. I just want Tony Larusa out of the dugout, man. It's driving me crazy. And the whole hitting coach philosophy thing, like players are going to buy into the major league approach and it's, it's not been good, right? We're seeing some, some poor numbers, um, but also it's up to the players, you know, it's on the players to make adjustments and to understand how pitchers are attacking them. And, you know, sometimes the players have deficiencies in their game where it can be exposed and they just can't fix it. Like, you know, I'm kind of struggles with fastballs. Stuff like that. It happens. And we brought up, and we're going to wrap this up as we introduce Brian Sikowski at Perfect Game. You brought up Jose Abreu. I mean, that is a confounding tale of what the hell are the White Sox going to do? Because 
he seems to be a White Sox for life. However, we all know the significance of the position that he plays and the roster spot that he takes up and what it means for everybody else around him if he's in the lineup every day. You want that production in the lineup, especially if it continues to his career average. But all in all, you're thinking about what the hell am I going to do with Andrew Vaughn and how am I going to play all these DH types when Jose Abreu is aging and probably still on his team. So like you said, that is something for Sox Machine to discuss. We're going to talk to Brian Sikowski, not we, more like James. James interviewed Brian Sikowski of Perfect Game Baseball. You can follow Brian at B underscore Sikowski underscore PG. Sikowski is S-A-K-O-W-S-K-I. So give Brian a follow on Twitter. And as we introduce this interview, stay tuned to the end because James Fox and I will have a conversation regarding Colson Montgomery, as well as an update on the Chicago White Sox top 30 rankings, uh, according to ESPN. So we'll get to that. But first, Brian Sikowski next. This is the Future Sox podcast. Don't go anywhere. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're lucky today to have Brian Sikowski, national cross-checker for uh, Perfect Game. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. It doesn't really seem like anybody enjoys this late draft in July. And obviously, like it was a little bit later this year just because of like the lockout and when the All-Star Game happened to be. But you know, it also doesn't seem like it's moving again anytime soon. Even like scouts and stuff that I know, obviously, like I've heard the same as you. It seems like everybody hates it. But like if, you know, if you were tasked with making this decision, when when would you uh, have the MLB draft? Um, I think that the concept of having it during the College World Series is probably the best one. Uh, I know that that's negatively impactful on what ends up being a very small percentage of players, like the guys who are mid-game when they get drafted or whatever. Like I towards the end of the college world series. I think that's when you have it. Um, we're not, I would love for it to go back to early June, but I understand the need to make it more of a, a premier thing and promote the game. And I think you can, you could do a whole week of, of the, you know, the final week of the college world series. And then there's the draft and, or maybe you do it at the end of conference tournaments and you have the draft on the weekend. And then Monday is selection Monday. And that seeds the tournament. I think Teddy Cahill from Baseball America had that idea. Um, but something like that to where it's you can't do late July. Like we can't have this annual cycle where each draft cycle is 14 months kind of in some way. Or It's just it doesn't work from a feasibility standpoint, not to mention stuff that I don't have to deal with. I'm not a general manager of a big league team trying to manage the trade deadline simultaneously. Uh, so yeah, I just I don't know. I think like mid-late June would be like a fair compromise, something involving the College World Series, something involving Selection Monday, somewhere in there. Yeah, I agree. I think June makes sense. I think that I don't I don't think it's going to happen, obviously, and we're probably going to have you on every year and we'll talk about the same stuff and how hard it is for everybody. But, you know, so before I get into this year's class uh, for the White Sox and just some draft stuff in general, I want to take you back to 2021. You know, the White Sox shifted their strategy a little bit, taking Colson Montgomery in round one last year, you know, a prep out of Indiana who was a multi-sport guy. And, you know, it kind of seemed like, you know, came on a little bit late and Mike Shirley loved him because he's from Indiana. Well, you know, Colson Montgomery's had a big year. He's kind of turned himself into a top 50 prospect at some publications. Are you surprised by his season after, uh, I guess, focusing on baseball for the first time in his life? Um. I guess I'm I'm not surprised that he's had a lot of success. 
I don't know if I expected him to do so so quickly and like at an advanced level it, at the same time. I, I this I wouldn't be I wouldn't have been surprised if we were having this conversation a year from now. You know, like he's tearing up A ball and he's tearing up high A. That would have made sense to me one year from now, looking back a year ago. What do you think about like Jim Callis brought up the fact that you know I think a lot of people projected maybe above average to plus power for him, and he's got eight homers, which is good. But I guess I didn't really expect him to be putting up huge on base percentage numbers and he is you know he's been like a 400 obp guy at certain spots so is that was that expected at all it's harder to project on base numbers than it is to project power in my opinion so i i think that he always was a guy with an approach uh, at the amateur level it was just you didn't really get to see it consistently because there was so much focus on other things like this guy was a, an incredible basketball player like everyone knows that Again, I, I don't want to say I'm surprised because I thought this dude was good, but I, I don't know if I expected a 900 OPS across two levels with power, with huge on base right away in his first full season. So then that brings us to this year where they, you know, they took another prep player in the first round, but it was interesting because you know the White Sox haven't taken a prep pitcher in the first round since Chris Honnell all the way back in 2001. You know, I think they surprised a lot of people by taking you know local kid here as we go east. Uh, Noah Schultz. What did you think about Noah Schultz? Like when you saw him, I guess the, the times that you've seen him and then, you know, what are your thoughts overall on the White Sox making that pick at number 26 in the first round? It's all about the upside here. This dude's got probably the best upside of any prep pitcher in the class. His upside is like Randy Johnson. That's the, the, the peak here. That's the high end. A uh, lot of ways to go to that, but you know, those types of unicorns don't come around very often just in terms of what they could be. So I, I thought it was, they did a great job and they did a great job to get him for slot. Like that's a undersold, unbelievable part of this whole thing too, is you get that kid, one of the guys with one of the few guys with true ace upside and you get him for slot in the late first with a small bonus pool. I thought that was a hell of a job. Yeah. And that's one of the things, I mean, we, we hosted a draft show that night and I was a little, I guess I was a little surprised. Like I had heard that the White Sox really liked him, but you also hear the stuff about Boris and Vanderbilt. But what did you think that day? What were you hearing or what were your expectations for Noah Schultz? Just because, you know, there were all those rumors that it was such a high number, but he was pitching summer ball here in the Chicagoland area. So it's like, you know, guys that do that aren't typically ticketed for college so do you remember like just kind of you know what you thought that day like signable unsignable like what did what were you thinking like in regards to Noah Schultz yeah I thought he was signable uh, just because of what you said like guys who are guys who just are going to go to school do what Andrew Dukanich did you know another midwestern guy hey appreciate everybody I'm, I'm going to Vanderbilt like thanks but no thanks and Schultz rather than do that pitched in the prospect league in the summer, you know, multiple outings. So that to me said he was signable. I figured it wouldn't be cheap, but uh, I thought there was a chance that AJ Preller was going to do something weird and take him at 15. Uh, and beyond that, I was just whoever saves money early, someone's going to pop him in the compound. That was my thoughts on that guy. I, I did not have any inkling of the White Sox being in there seriously. I'd heard in the weeks pre preceding the draft, like, Hey, man, White Sox are in heavy at every one of Schultz's starts. But some of that was written off by the fact that he's a local guy. You know, the White Sox front office is not far away from from where he was pitching. So there was a convenience factor there. So I had the White Sox kind of in the back of my head. I did have him assignable. I just didn't think it was going to be Chicago. Yeah, same thing here. And, like, once they make that pick, it's like, you know, I think, like, I didn't really think they'd go overslot, but you didn't know how much it was going to cost. Then you kind of knew it wasn't going to be overslot when they made their next two picks. So they were very pitching focused, but I mean, you know, you get Peyton Paulette in the second round for 1.5 and then they go over uh, with Jonathan Cannon at 925,000, I believe to push him down to 101. What do you think about like that strategy? And then I guess like that hall of three pitchers with your first three picks, like with a pretty small bonus pool. Yeah. I think they did a fair job of, of what you want to do. You want to balance risk and, and safety, right? And, John Cannon, probably one of the safer guys in the draft. I, I don't think he's going to be uh, anything beyond a number three or number four starter, probably closer to number four, number five, but he's probably going to move quick. He throws a lot of strikes. Uh, he was a fourth-year guy or whatever the weird deal with COVID was, but a, an older guy jet relative to the to the class. Um, so you, you had some financial wiggle room there with that. But 
and Paulette is the Paulette's more the unknown for me than Schultz. We don't know anything about Paulette. Like he pitched kinda as a freshman, like kinda okay. And then he had Tommy John, and there was really no high school track record on him either. So we don't. That's the wild card for me more than Schultz. We know about Schultz. That dude's either going to be really, really good, or maybe you, you know what I mean. The upside is there with Paulette. We don't even know what the the upside is. People comp him to Walker Bueller, uh, just in terms of body type and arm speed and et cetera, et cetera. What they look like at the same age, but that one for me is the that's the big swing more so than Schultz. I think if if you have Schultz graded as the guy with the best upside on your board, you should take him. That's not like the the gut feel thing or anything like that. I think Paulette's that one. So we'll talk about some of the other pitchers the White Sox took. But in the fourth round, you know, they finally went to the position side with Jordan Sprinkle out of UC Santa Barbara. What do you think happened to that guy this year? Because I remember like early in the year seeing him as maybe like a comp round guy. And Mike Shirley, you know, said in a press conference that he thought somebody got in that kid's ear and told him he needed to hit for more power. And that's kind of what happened. But do you have any thoughts on that? And just kind of, you know, he falls to the fourth round. I think it's pretty decent value still there, even, you know, even though he didn't really hit this year. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what happened. What what uh, Mr. Shirley said, like it, I think he was. You, you can kind of see it. The, the differences in the swing from when he was outstanding all summer to last spring and into this year, like there's a little bit more noticeable trying to get the ball in the air. And, and I'm a proponent of trying to get the ball in the air more, but not everybody's ideal uh, launch angle is 30. You know, so I, I think there was just a. He tried to do a little bit more than, than who he is and got away from some of the things that made him as good as he was as far as a hitter. But that's a dude who can really pick it. Like he can really, really play defense. He's going to play shortstop. So if you bring any of that bat back, that's a steal. And even if you don't, even even if he's like a well below average hitter, he'll probably get some value out of him just as a defender. So I, I was thought that was like a good buy low type of pick there with, with pretty good upside if you can get him back to what he was. So the White Sox under Mike Shirley had been a team recently where, you know, they'd put a lot of their bonus pool like into their top couple picks and then they're taking a lot of seniors. This year they didn't really do that. They they kind of added talent throughout all the way through round seven, essentially. Ball State lefty Tyler Schweitzer, Eric Adler of Wake Forest. I think, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, some of the good Cape performance and the good stuff, but he was pretty bad um, this year. And then Mark McLaughlin, any any thoughts on just those three guys in general? Saw Schweitzer, I, I like it there. I, the upside's not overwhelming, but he's probably a guy that's like going to be in double A next year and, and, you know, some kind of swing man, fifth starter type of guy. Uh, Adler, who knows? Who knows? You might never see that guy, but he might be in the eighth inning in the big leagues. In a couple, you know, it, it's kind of a, I think there's, there's more than just, uh, you know, struggles to throw strikes going on there. Just some, some things they got to get right. We saw the stuff on the Cape last year. He has huge stuff, so we'll see. And McLaughlin is just a – he's a guy who performed really well this year at Tennessee, like had a role, nothing overwhelming, but like that's a guy you obviously are are able to sign uh, for a little bit of a deal anyway, save some money. He's a a fine uh, middle relief. So do you have any – like the White Sox took – Ian Hamilton in round 11 some years back out of Washington state. And then they, you know, they, they kind of turned Cody Hoyer into like a bullpen weapon too. Is Adler similar to either of those guys? Yeah, it's, it's so much change up dominant with Adler um, that that kind of, it, it differentiates him a little bit from some guys in terms of, Oh, you know, like the big stuff college reliever who can't throw any strikes. Like it's usually a breaking ball. Uh, that the the hammer is and you like you're identifying breaking ball traits and if you can hone them in enough then like Tampa Bay does all the time but with him it's so changeup dominant and it, it's the stuff is there like we know that it's just it's kind of unplayable strikes right now so it's it's not even like a man he's walking a guy in inning man he walked two last night like it's it's pretty unplayable so there's some stuff they got to do there but that's the that's the risk you take and that's the the upside of it is like you know, if you can figure it out, the guy has the stuff to potentially close down games at the big league level. But if you can't, you know, like I said earlier, we're never going to hear from that guy again, maybe. So, you know, I often talk to people about the baseball draft and how it's different than other drafts. And, you know, I really need like all 20 picks, you know, before I can decide how to rank the players, essentially. And the White Sox drafted seniors at eight, nine and 10. But then on day three, something a little bit you know, puzzling to me. And we talked a little bit pre-show obviously, but Jacob Burke out of Miami was a transfer uh, outfielder. He hit 13 homers, 
you know, he had a two, two to one strikeout to walk rate guys. Like the White Sox haven't taken many guys like that. They gave him 225 K in round 11. Mike Shirley said, you know, he's going to stay in center field and he loves the makeup and he's got power. And then in round 12, it was Brooks Baldwin, who I noticed like had lots of fans, just your typical plays all over. He won that conference as player of the year. So, you know, just anything on uh, either of those two guys leading off day three. Yeah, I think there's kind of a, you kind of, there's a difference there. Like, all right, Baldwin's kind of the safer guy who was the player of the year and has done nothing but perform and blah, blah, blah. Everybody loves him. And you, you won't find any scouts who probably didn't like that guy at least a little bit. And Burke is the polarizing upside guy. Uh, he swings and misses too much. It, it's big and athletic and powerful and physical and, uh, you know, has the athleticism to play center field. There's your upside. And Baldwin's kind of your matching safety to go along with that. So, like we talked about what they what they did with pitchers early on, they kind of did that right there in 11 and 12, too. You know, whether it's the seniors, Elko and those guys in 8, 9, and 10, or anybody else on day three, um, any, anybody else that – you thought like, oh, that's that's kind of an interesting pick for them, like where you know where they took a guy. Yeah, I, the the sixteenth rounder Stevers from Texas State, I, unbelievable numbers, uh, threw a lot as a reliever uh, for them. I think he kind of did some swingman stuff, but like a lot of usage, a lot of innings, a lot of strikeouts, minimal walks. He's old, uh, you know. I think he's twenty four, twenty five already. It's just like I, I think that he's going to be kind of one of those quick mover under the radar, all of a sudden that dude's in AAA and he's a usable up and down type of guy. Like, you know, not, not nothing overwhelming or sexy there, but uh, that's a guy who you may get the first value out of at the big league level. You know, not necessarily projecting that, but again, I don't think the upside's overwhelming, but this dude who all of a sudden this White Sox 16th rounder has 70 big league innings in, in six years or so. Like, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah, I think there's a few of these guys who like next year all of a sudden like they're in the bullpen like in double A already. Like it just yeah. kind of seems like and and you know, if like a couple of tweaks, like all of a sudden the guy's in the big leagues and it's like, oh, where did where did this come from? The White Sox have actually done an okay job of doing that with guys. So, you know, we, we kind of talked about how these classes are colliding a little bit. You know, I just want you to touch on just next year's class. Like it seems like more premium prep hitters like it seems like every year these guys are more advanced than ever and it's kind of what you do so I think you're the perfect guy to talk about I mean obviously out of out of Indiana's got another one and then there's a few more so what do you uh it's a while from now but what do you like about next year's class early on yeah it's I don't know if the high school class has the same level of high end as this one and obviously you're talking about Max Clark that's a guy that the, the college bats at the high end are better next year uh, you know, Dylan Cruz is right there. Jacob Gonzalez is right there. We talked about Max Clark, Wyatt Langford from Florida. Like those are what looks to be the top of the class. Like Enrique Bradfield is in that mix. But I, I don't know if like there's four or five guys who people might have sevens on like there were in this class. Uh, talking about, you know, Elijah Green and Drew Jones and Tamar Johnson, like that group, Cam Collier, et cetera. Yeah. So in regards to that, like next year's class, though, like is it a little bit different. Like how interested are you like in the draft lottery? And do you, do you think it's really changed anything? I mean, you know, paying attention to some of these big league clubs at the bottom or teams going to try to jockey into those first three spots to have like the, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this goes with like this draft lottery for the first time. Yeah. I mean, tanking still exists in sports that have lotteries already. So I don't think that that's necessarily going to curtail it, at, you know, like a, a, a less, less of an odds of you getting the first overall pick now, doesn't really move the needle for an owner to necessarily add forty million dollars in salary or something to try and compete. So I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm cynic, uh, cynical, but I don't know if it's really going to do anything. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I'm the same. I just kind of think, you know, like if you're the Nationals or the Reds or whatever, now like you really want, like, there's no incentive for you to not have a bottom three record. Like you, you have to get in and look, and maybe the ping pong balls or whatever don't bounce your way. But I mean, there's really no reason to not get that like 16 and a half percent chance or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. There's nothing that's really going to curtail the the upside of tanking or like the perceived upside of tanking. So like I'm with you. I think we're in lockstep on it. Yeah. So before, you know, before I get to my last thing here, the, you know, the White Sox came into this draft. I think they spent close to their, you know, their 5% overage, like 6.5 million, something in that range. 
bottom three spending capabilities in the class. How do you, how do you think they did overall? I mean, obviously like, look, you know, the players could be whatever, just like strategically did what they do make sense with like the bonus pool that they had. Yeah. And I thought they were going to have to get more creative than they did. Especially like we talked about earlier, especially when, when 26 was Schultz or, you know, it was like, okay, well now they're going to have to cut it too, probably. And what are they going to be able to do? And, uh, do they even have enough money to move around and play in three and four, whatever? Like, so when when you're able to get Schultz for slot there, then all of a sudden it frees up your board. And okay, now we can go get a Peyton Pallet. They did it so well that they didn't have to be creative, I guess is the way I'm saying it. Like, when you get your guy, your pick for that slot, you don't, that's, that's got to be a win. That's not, you know, like, oh man, it's, I wish we would have been able to cut and get a bunch more guys later. Like, no, you got your guy. And you paid him what the, the slot is. So I, I think that the lack of creativity was is more complimentary because of how good they did at 26. You know, we keep talking about the late draft, obviously. Like, how about what the late draft did for a guy like Kate Horton? You see him pitch in the College World Series and whatnot. And I mean, that guy, like if the draft is in early June, like Kate Horton's probably back in Oklahoma next year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He probably is. Or, or he, his number drops all the way down to 500,000 or something like that. That's a great story. We don't know if that we still got to wait 10 years to find out if, you know, one surge of dominance makes the player. You know, we don't know if that was a good pick yet or not. It, based on what he was for the last month of the college season or whatever, like, yeah, all right, sure. If that's your that's your top college guy. Like, all right, I, I don't necessarily agree, but I'm not going to argue with you. Like, sure. So we don't know yet, but I, you're right. Like, that's a thing that would not have happened if we didn't have the draft later. But I still think that's kind of uh, outweighed by all the, the bad parts of it, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So last thing I have for you, I don't know how mad this is going to make you, but you're on the Future Sox podcast. What the heck is going on with the Detroit Tigers? Like, my goodness. Yeah. Like, we've had we've had some some buddies on that are Tiger guys talking about Alavila and just what, like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm pretty sure, like, I I think... I know what you think should happen, but what, like, what, what is like the end game here? Like, is this finally like new regime time in Detroit? And then how does that affect AJ Hinch? If so, um, so I'm not going to pretend to have any sort of inside information on this, but like, my gut is this is probably the last year. They'll probably wait till the end of the season and and try and do it as quietly as they can. And I would imagine that. AJ Hinch will get to have an opinion on who the replacement should be. That's my that's my gut feeling on it. I, I think Hinch is probably more likely to be in the long term plans than uh, the the current GM. But that's just again that's just a hunch. I don't know that to be to be the case. But I, I mean, again, man, it, a lot of building a club into a contender takes a little bit of luck, and sometimes you get bad luck, and that's not necessarily your fault. But they've been bad for seven years. That's that's too long. That's too long. <laughs> Thanks to James for that interview, filling in for me there, talking to Brian Zakowski, a perfect game. And James, that was that was insightful. I was really excited to hear what Brian thought of the draft class, especially some of the pitchers like Jonathan Cannon as a, a bottom end mid rotation starter. I'll take that. He seems like he can project to the big leagues pretty quickly, according to Brian. And some of the insight too, I think specifically that you wanted to note and follow up on was the value that Noah Schultz brings to the organization. I guess the White Sox, well, obviously they love him, but the White Sox have something that could be special sitting there as a prep pitcher, the left-handed starter, Noah Schultz. Yeah. So, I mean, he was super highly regarded, obviously as one of the, you know, there were three prep lefties early in the class that were very highly regarded. I guess Brandon Barrero went to Toronto and the Cubs took Jackson Ferris in the second round, but they gave him $3 million, obviously. And then there was Noah Schultz. And look, we've talked about Noah Schultz and the stuff with Boris and Vanderbilt and all the money and like how we thought he was going to get, you know, like a big time overslot deal. And he signed for slot. I think, and you know, Mike Shirley kind of indicated this and Brian said it too. The White Sox were in a spot where they wanted to take pitching if they could. And there were some college guys on the board who they liked. And there were college guys that they projected as pretty safe mid-rotation starters in the future. 
And instead of that, they said, give me the highest upside guy. They legit think that Noah Schultz could be an ace. They think he has top of the rotation potential. It doesn't mean he's going to be, but you know, at 26, I'm totally fine with them taking that type of shot on a guy. And something you brought up, you know, on an earlier episode, like Mike Shirley has a type, man. Like this, this makes a lot of sense after the fact, right? I don't like nobody predicted Noah Schultz to the White Sox, but after the pick was made, I think we were both like, oh, okay, yeah, that guy fits Mike Shirley. So yeah, I, I think a lot of this makes perfect sense now. And then what they did after was obviously very intriguing, you know, and it all kind of falls into place by Noah Schultz signing for, you know, $2.8 million in the first round. That part was pretty helpful. Yeah, something insightful too that Brian provided was the fact that the White Sox had a pretty basic strategy this year across the 20 rounds where we saw in previous years the White Sox go over slot in certain rounds, which you know kind of redistributed their bonus pool across the first 10 uh, in various ways. But this year is pretty straight up, and Brian credited the White Sox for that strategy because they got everybody essentially that they were looking for who they thought were you know, valuable signings um, and also players who were going to sign. Um, and I'm excited about Jordan Sprinkle, too. I want to watch him play. James, as we move on as and we're getting closer to wrapping up this episode, got some news from Baseball America. Colson Montgomery ranked number 38 on their top 100 list. That's top 100 in all of baseball. The White Sox have something special and now officially a top 40 prospect, according to Baseball America. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, like, you know, I think a lot of people project Colson Montgomery for above average power at some point, right? He's got eight homers across both levels of A-ball. And I just think the biggest thing is just the on-base ability wasn't expected because he wasn't a baseball circuit kid, right? He was a multi-sport athlete. This is the kind of stuff that, like, you don't know. And he's just been, he's been really, really good. I think the people who told us that they thought he could stay at shortstop seem to be it seems to be trending that way at this point right but even if not like he has enough bat for third this is pretty much best case scenario right now for the White Sox 2021 first rounder in Colson Montgomery he just keeps rising up these lists so uh this is it's been it's been pretty promising for him I can't say that I expected it a 50-game on-base streak, an advanced approach at the play. We heard it from various guests already on the Future Sox podcast, which you can go and listen to. Subscribe anywhere if you'd like what you're hearing now, and if you'd like to continue following the White Sox as we are, come and join us. Follow us on Twitter as well, at Future Sox. And if you're interested, send us an email. We can talk to you directly on this here podcast, futuresocks at gmail.com if you're interested in sending us any questions or comments about what we have to offer for you, also at SoxMachine.com. Now, James, as we wrap things up, Kylie McDaniel put out some rankings of farm systems across Major League Baseball. What about those intrigued you? Yeah, so I just thought it was interesting, like he did it post-draft, um, I think more are coming. I think the, you know, the top 30 update from Baseball America is coming. We will talk to Bill Mitchell again soon. So Kylie had the White Sox 29th still. And look, I think it's fair to have them in the bottom five. I mean, what they've just added to their system, like everybody just added to their system. I think the system's better. I think it's improving. You know, I think we, we talked about Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos is improved and, Oscar Colas is, you know, close to the majors. So, you know, somewhere in that 20 to 30 range, I'm not going to like say that Kylie McDaniel's wrong for having the White Sox 29th, but you know, there's some systems that he had ranked ahead of them, like that I would prefer the White Sox system over. So I I think that's it. I think we're just going to see, you know, as these rankings come out, like how different it looks. The one takeaway that I had, like, I still think, you know, in our list of future socks will be coming out pretty soon. We keep talking about that. Like, I think Lenin Sosa is like being underranked a little bit. Like, I, I think what he did at Double A is real. He obviously came up for a tiny sample in the big leagues, and the manager won't play him anyway. But I just like think that that was real growth from a guy that's a major leaguer soon. And I feel like they're they're like not getting credit for that development yet. So that that's the only thing where I just kind of feel like, you know, everybody knows Montgomery Colas is mentioned. And, you know, I think like Norhe Vero was mentioned and Brian Ramos, but I don't really see Lenin Sosa mentioned that often. And he's only 22 and he put up the monster season that he did in double a. And now he's in Charlotte. I just, I think he's, 
a little bit better than, you know, than how he's being ranked currently. That's James Fox of Future Sox. He's the senior writer for our platform, as well as my co-host here on the Future Sox podcast. James talked to Brian Sikowski of Perfect Game, just essentially a scout, a roaming scout. He gets familiar with all of the products across all the country um, for Perfect Game, which is awesome. And he provided a ton of information on the White Sox draft class currently. He also provided very uh, optimistic information regarding Colson Montgomery, as we talked about it as well. It seems like the White Sox have something special there. Also, I keep referring back in my mind the Keith Law listing of top 100 prospects. Really, it's the top 60 prospects in the country. And Colson Montgomery was on that list. And just missing that list was Brian Ramos. So to us, as we're thinking out loud about our top 30 here at Future Sox, James, this is where I'm at. Montgomery has to be one, and this is a little sneak peek. This is for you, the dedicated listener, for sticking around this podcast. We're going to give you a little preview of what we're working on in the top 30. But here's my thought process, right? Montgomery at the top, that's a no-brainer. If Brian Ramos, according to Keith Law, is just outside the top 60 in the entire Major League Baseball uh, prospect pool, then he's got to be a top three prospect. But he's not number two, in my opinion because I think Oscar Colas is that dude. So Montgomery, Colas, Ramos, then it gets interesting because you and I are very high on Norhe Vera. However, Lenin Sosa deserves to be in the mix as well. And Christian Mena deserves to be in the conversation as well. Same with Noah Schultz as a guy who Brian Sikowski said has Randy Johnson absolute top end ceiling attached to his profile. So, and look, that's a lot. To say, and like again with, was it Peyton Paulette who was compared to, who is that, the Dodgers pitcher? Yeah, Peyton Paulette has gotten Walker Bueller comps. And I think, so they're like similar in stature, um, and they both like missed time, I think is generally what the what the comp is, so... You got Peyton Paulette being comp to Walker Bueller. You got Noah Schultz at his absolute peak being comp to Randy Johnson. You got Colson Montgomery, a top 40 prospect, according to Baseball America. And Brian Ramos, apparently, according to Keith Law, who's really good on hitting prospects, has Ramos just outside the top 60 in all of baseball. So the White Sox farm system is getting there. So we're excited to talk about it, James, coming up in future episodes. You mentioned Bill Mitchell as the guy who's um, working for Baseball America and keeping a close eye on the White Sox. He is assigned to the White Sox top 30 list for Baseball America. So we're going to get insight from him coming up in future episodes. But James, that's what we're working on is the top 30 for the White Sox. And the top 10 is going to be interesting to talk about together. You know, we, there might be some qualms about who goes where, but I, but I think we uh, I think we know who those names are. And yeah, like the interesting thing about Keith Law is if he uh, put 60 names down and then 10 just missed names and Brian Ramos is one of the just missed names, like, you know, I don't really like math, but Brian Ramos is a top 70 prospect in baseball, according to Keith Law. That's what I'm talking about. White Sox are on their way back, kind of, I guess. I don't know if you want to call it that, but let's be optimistic for a week until the White Sox figure out another way to let us down and be disappointed in them. James, this was fun. Thanks for doing the interview with Brian. It was an awesome experience to be able to sit back, relax, and listen to you guys talk it up about Major League Baseball amateur draft, as well as the prospects that the White Sox were able to obtain and improve their farm system. We're going to, like I said, Work on the top 30 for futuresocks.com and socksmachine.com, so keep an eye on that. We have our writers putting together their individual top 30s as well. Stay tuned for more information about the Chicago White Sox farm system here at futuresocks.com. We're going to talk to you all next week. Until then, thanks so much for listening.